So I have the privilege of bringing us tonight's Bible reading from Micah chapter 6, so all the way from verse 1 to the end, verse 16. So starting from the start of chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I quit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you, because of your sins." You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will be empty. You will store up, but save nothing, because of what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. So there's this, uh, this campaign going on at the moment in the USA. It's funded by this small group of anonymous billionaires and it's being run by a kind of like a viral marketing kind of firm. So there's billboards and bus stops and merch. And the headline in the paper reads, $100 million campaign aims to fix Jesus' brand from followers' damage. So the, the campaign director uh, named John Lee, he said, our goal is to give voice to the pent-up energy of like-minded Jesus followers who are ready to reclaim the name of Jesus from those who abuse it to judge, harm and divide people. Another leader in the campaign said, he gets us is a movement to free the story of Jesus from hypocrites and extremists. Why have they taken that line? They've taken that line because the research this firm did found that most Americans, and I think probably most Australians, match this, like Jesus, but are sceptical of Jesus' followers. How's that come to be? Why is it like that? 
What happened that people's perception or opinion of Jesus and people's opinion or perception of Jesus' followers could be so different? Well, it, it's largely because of people who have who've claimed the name of Jesus, but they're not being like him, right? People who say that they're Christian, but are unchanged by the Christian gospel. It's a huge problem. Right? And it's especially been a huge problem through the 20th and early 21st centuries with the kind of last generations and decades of, of Christendom, of, of Australia being a, a Christian society. When people are religious but not transformed by their faith, it's a huge problem. And it's basically the problem here in Micah 6, in those verses that Amy read for us. So the question for us tonight is, does our faith, does, does God penetrate deep into our hearts or does our faith stay skin deep? Is our worship heart transforming or is it skin deep? That's the question for us tonight. I wonder if you've ever eaten an apple, right? And it's, it's beautiful, it's, it's shiny, it's big, it's red. You, you take the first bite and the kind of sweet juice is flying between your teeth. It's great. But then as your teeth go through the apple, something changes. And inside the apple, you feel a mushy, pasty, slightly warm, something that you just feel in your mouth is going to be brown when you take your face back and look at it. You ever had that bitten into an apple and it's rotten from the core? It's, it's disgusting. It's repulsive. Right? Beautiful and shiny on the outside, rotten on the inside. That's basically the state of God's people in Micah's day. That's what the people of God are like here. And so God's people, the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they're in the dock. This is a court scene, this passage. Maybe you picked up some legal language as we read through it. God is the prosecuting attorney. And what's the charge? Decay inside, underneath a shiny religious veneer. A rotten heart under smooth skin. Have a look uh, at, at verses 1 to 5. If you've got the handout there, if, if you've got a Bible uh, with you. And as I read through the first few verses, see if you can see that, the, the legal language, how this is kind of a courtroom scene. Right, so listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Can you see this, this legal scene here? God's bringing this accusation, this charge against his own people. And he goes on then to remind them of what he's done for them. He's heartbroken that after he's cared for them for centuries, they're turning their backs on him. Right? He says, verse 3, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. He goes on and on, reminding them of all the ways that he's loved them and cared for them, and yet they have rejected him. They have turned their backs on him. And so then in the later part of the passage from verses 9 to 16, you can see him bring more specific charges against them. He's charging them with cheating and stealing, 
dishonest business, violence, oppression of the poor, lying, deceit, idol worship, following evil traditions. I was on a jury once for a pretty awful crime. And even just the the reading of the charges at the start of the case, it felt like it took forever. And by the time the charges were read, there was this this devastated hush over the whole room with the awareness that if these charges are true, if these charges stick, if this person's found guilty, this this is an awful and deep tragedy. And that's the mood here as God lays his charges against his people. This is really bad for the people of God. God's people have become a wicked people. At the city that was supposed to be a beacon to the whole world of the goodness of God has become a den of corruption. There is a gap like that campaign identified between who God is and who his people are. God's people are no longer faithful. They're no longer representing him here. They're dangerous and they're corrupt. And the evil is so deep that it's become systemic, right? It's baked in. Even their rulers, even the systems of their society are corrupt. The vulnerable become victims. Sometimes sometimes people question God's judgment of sin or are confused by a God who would judge sin. Maybe this is you. Maybe you find it hard to understand or worship a God who who judges people for what they do. But look at God's heart here. Look at who he is, what he's charging his people with. And see, he's he's justified in his anger. He is a righteous judge. That the people of God are so corrupt that the vulnerable among them are not cared for but oppressed. God's angry at that. He's judging that. This is a city full of corrupt businessmen who are coldly, systematically exploiting the poor to line their own pockets, right? trapping people in endless cycles of, of debt and poverty. This is a city full of immorality, people who say the name of God in one breath and then in the next breath lie, cheat, indulge their own desires. This is a city full of everyday people who deliberately turn a blind eye to those who are suffering around them, those in need, hoarding more than they require, while the homeless beg for bread on the street just outside their house. This, this is the RMS Queen Mary. She was commissioned in 1936. She was the biggest ship that had ever sailed the ocean at the time. She was originally a luxury cruise liner and was renowned for these beautiful, iconic red and black smokestacks that you can see there. When World War II came along, she was converted into a troop carrier and 800,000 soldiers were shipped back and forth across the Atlantic under those red and black smokestacks. 10,001 Atlantic crossings, 800,000 troops, at least 30 new coats of paint on her smokestacks. And when they retired her decades later, they they removed those smokestacks for for maintenance and refurbishment. But as the crane picked them up and lowered them down onto the wharf, they disintegrated. They, They crumbled to dust. 
Layer after layer of shiny red paint had hidden the rusting, decaying steel underneath until there was nothing left but paint. The beautiful exteriors of those smokestacks were hiding, were disguising something rusted, something rotten underneath. The outward appearance was hiding the inward reality. And God wants something better than that for his people here and he wants something better than that for you. God doesn't want paint over rust. He doesn't want an an outward facade over a decaying inner life. He doesn't want religious practice without heart transformation. That's the, the accusation, the case that God's bringing against his people here, right? And so what happens from verse 6, you can have a look at that in front of you, is God brings this charge and so the people panic and try to make a plea deal. Right? They're like, oh no, God's bringing this charge against us, what are we going to do? We'll find what it's going to take to placate him, to please him. What do we have to give him to make this go away, to turn aside his anger? Right? And it's a little ambiguous in these verses in 6 to 8, whether it's the people of God speaking or Micah himself, the prophet, kind of as a representative of the people. But either way, what we're seeing here is the kind of natural human response to God's charge of sin. So have a look uh, from verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Right, so what does he want from me? What can I bring? What can I do to make this go away? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Right, should I bring him material sacrifices, wealth, stuff? What do I need to bring to make God happy? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Okay, what about bigger sacrifices? What about more stuff? What about more money? Is that what it would take to please God? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Okay, what about even the most precious thing I have, even my own child? If I sacrificed my own child, the thing I love even more than my own life, would that be enough to turn away God's anger? Would that be enough to prove to God that I love him? None of them would please God. None of them are what God desires, what he longs for, what he wants from us. God is not interested in getting your stuff, even the most precious. This, this natural human response, the response of Israel, is to do more and more religious stuff, to bring more stuff to God, but that's not what he wants. No amount of religious rituals or attendance replaces a, a holy and faithful life, a heart devoted to God. They're just treating God like an idol. Right, like the way that all the people in the nations around them in the ancient world treated their gods. We'll bring them stuff and they won't destroy us. But the God of the Bible is not like that. He is not a God who exists to transact with you, to, to take bribes, to be paid off, to give you prosperity or to keep you from harm. 
No, he is your creator. He's your father who loves you and wants real relationship with you. He wants the worship of your heart. He wants your love, not skin-deep devotion. And we see this, we see what God truly wants uh, in verse 8. So have a look with me at verse 8 in your handout or in your Bible. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? So this is God's response to people's kind of escalating attempts to understand what he wants from them. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, there is no no thing that you could bring to God which would be enough to make him love you or to prove your love to him. Because, here's the, the good news, here's the gospel, you don't have to. You don't have to bring anything to God to prove your love to him or to gain his love for you. He loved you before the creation of the world. Before the earth was born, you were in his heart. He loved you before you took your first breath. He loved you as he took his last breath on the cross to make a way for you to be with him. He has shown you his love. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. He has shown you in the cross and the empty tomb that he is not a God who wants your stuff. He's a God who wants your heart. This verse, verse 8, right? It's one of those famous verses, makes it onto like car bumper stickers and posters and church buildings and things like that. This verse stands as the motto of the alcove of religion in the reading room of the Congressional Library in Washington. And lots of accolades have been thrown at this verse, right? One scholar says, this is the centre of all the commandments as the prophets understood them. Another scholar calls it the finest summary of the content of practical religion in the Old Testament. And ancient rabbis who commented on this verse called it a one-line summary of the whole law. What do you reckon? Do you reckon that's an accurate description? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That's what a transformed life looks like. That's what a life lived in response to God's love looks like. Is it what your life looks like? Let's dig in for a moment to each of those three phrases, those three parts of this vision for life, right? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. First, act justly. What what does that mean? What is just? What is justice? Well, the dictionary uh, calls justice the quality of equitableness and moral rightness. That's a bit bland. But the Bible has a richer meaning for the word of justice. It carries a whole lot of ideas in it, like the idea of, of right relationship, the idea of bringing wholeness to brokenness, the idea of aligning reality with the heart of God. 
That's the biblical picture of, of justice. And we love the idea of justice, right? Part of the, the, the Christian history of our nation is a high value on justice. We appeal to justice a lot for, for minority groups, for people who are oppressed or persecuted. We want justice for, for refugees, justice for victims of violence, justice for women, justice for all kinds of groups in our society. But far too often, I think, what we do in reality, in our own lives, is we go from acting justly to opposing injustice, which is a bit easier, and then probably even a bit further still to de-identifying ourselves with injustice, putting ourselves in a different group to those who do injustice. Can you see the difference there? It would be easier if the command here was to love justice rather than act justly, right? Because that's more abstract. If we would ask the room, do you love justice? Everybody will put their hand up, right? No one's going to say, no, I don't like justice. But if we ask the group, what just acts are you doing? Are you acting justly? I think we might pause. We might get a more patchy response. Acting justly makes more of a demand on us. It's necessarily costly. To act justly is costly, and and so it is indeed to love mercy as well. The word for mercy here is the word hesed. Maybe you've come across that word. It's kind of one of the Bible's big important words. It's the word for God's covenant love for his people. It's faithful and deep and enduring love. The, the kids' Bible that I read to my daughter Bella calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. That's God's hesed love, his mercy. And like God's justice, God's mercy is costly. It's because of his mercy that Christ died for us. And, and for us, if we would be people of never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, that doesn't come cheap. That's a costly way to live. In order to, to do that, in order to act justly and to love mercy, we have to walk humbly with our God. This kind of life, it, it is a whole, it's a whole way of life. It's a whole walk, a journey with God. Right? And we walk humbly with him as we're aware of our need for him and his power and presence with us to enable us to live out this life. We walk in step with him, looking to him for, for help, for rest, for strength, for all that we need. The life which God loves, what he requires of us, in the language of Micah 6.8 there, is one that can only be lived by his power, not by our own. God doesn't want sacrifices. God doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want a bunch of religious practice. God wants your heart, your transformed life of justice and mercy, walking humbly with him. So how deep does your faith go? Is it, is it skin deep or is it heart transforming? I see people with skin deep faith all the time. 
I see people, right, week on week, year on year, unchanged by the gospel. People who, who, who do the things, who show up to stuff, who sing the songs, but it, it seems like nothing happens in them. And I, I, I want to grab them, I want to look them in the eyes, I want to tell them that somehow they are missing out on the best thing, the best person, the best life that they could know. And I know that part of the reason that it grieves me so deeply to see people with that kind of skin-deep faith that doesn't transform is that my own faith, but for the grace of God, for his steady sanctifying work in me, my own faith would go the same way. In Micah's day, God's people are trying to bring God lots of stuff to do lots of religious rituals, while they remain unchanged, violent, lying, oppressive. Instead of their religious practices, their their gatherings, their their rituals, their patterns of life, instead of those things serving as as heart-shaping, sanctifying, pattern-setting rhythms and experiences, they've become just these hollow expressions of something that's external and not internal. Is that where you're at? Does your religion transform you? You might ask it like this. Apart from the times when you're doing your faith stuff, right? Going to church, maybe going to Bible study. Apart from those kind of periods in the week, would your life look any different if you weren't a follower of Jesus? That's, that's when it hits the road, right? That's when it matters. Faith in those in-between times has to mean something. It has to change us. It has to transform us in those in-between times, in our inner lives, in the moments when nobody sees. That's heart-deep religion. Friends, here's, here's the good news. Right? Here's the gospel in this passage though our faith was skin deep God reached into our hearts when we didn't love him he loved us God acted justly God loved mercy he did it in the person and work of Jesus the one the only one whose own life was the perfect expression of this vision of God's for us. Jesus lived out perfect, full justice and mercy. He walked humbly with God in every moment. And then through the cross and the resurrection, he took us by the hand and made a way for us to join in that life, in that walk with him. His spirit in us empowers us to live the way God calls us to live. That's why this passage is gospel, good news, and not good works. God doesn't just give us this standard for life and then stand back to see if we make it or not. No, no, that is not who he is. He comes to us, he kneels down, he helps us, he takes us by the hand and leads us into the life that he calls us to. In his love for us, God changes us. Leighton Ford said, 
God loves us just the way we are, but too much to leave us that way. Or as the great preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote about this verse, only through faith in Christ does a person learn to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us to that end do we fulfil these divine requirements. God does not want skin-deep worship that does religious stuff and says religious things but lies over an unchanged heart. That is not what God wants. He desires transformed hearts, transformed people lives of justice and mercy walking with him so perhaps you're here tonight and you you don't believe in the God of the Bible or maybe not in any God at all if that's you then my hope tonight for you is the same as the hope that that campaign in America has for Americans I hope that you can see God for who he is that you can see what's in the heart of the God of the Bible, direct from him. Like that marketing campaign is trying to undo kind of unhelpful perceptions of God based on crappy things that his followers have done, I hope that you can assess God here on his own merits. He is a God of justice and mercy. He is a God who loves us and desires our love for him in return not one who just wants religious observance or some kind of ritualistic obedience or wants our stuff. And he is a God who would enter our world, die in our place, rise to new life ahead of us and give us his spirit so that we might live for him now and forever. Others of us here might be feeling kind of called out by God's word here, seeing the gap between our own outward actions and our inner lives. Some of us might have been living Christian lives like the Queen Mary, right, shiny on the outside but broken inside. For those of us, know that Micah chapter 6 is not a word of condemnation for you but a word of hope. It's an invitation. Jesus went ahead of you to live the perfect life that you can't live, that I can't live, that no one can live. He did it for you. He died for you. He rose for you. He sent his spirit for you to make it possible for you to be made new. For that to happen, to move from a kind of a surface level religious observance to a transformed heart and life, that's, that's God's work over a lifetime. That takes his intervention, it takes time, and it takes one another it takes community so if this is where you are at you feel like there's a mismatch between your outward christian life and your inward heart can i encourage you can i urge you to talk to someone about it talk to a friend talk to someone you know talk to me or larissa come up the front after the service to pray with someone this kind of work of of moving faith into our hearts to transform us that's work that we do together So make the most of that resource that God gives us. Some of us then, a third group, are living genuine, heart-transformed lives of faith. 
right? Not perfect faith, of course not by any means, but, but growing in knowledge and love of Jesus, growing in living for him. For, for those of us among us, let me encourage you to consider how your life might increasingly be one that reflects this vision of God in Micah 6.8, how your life might be one of justice and mercy and walking humbly with God. These verses are rightly often used to promote uh, advocacy and, and support and charity, care for vulnerable people around us and in our societies. So uh, what might that look like for you? Who are the people around you who are, are victims of injustice? How might you act justly? How might you love and, and show mercy to people around you who need it? Because it's, it's those actions, it's that transformed life in the in-between times that God desires for us. It's transformed hearts that he longs for. It's transformed hearts that he makes possible. It's a transformed life that he invites us into. I'm going to pray that we would receive, that we would respond to that invitation and live that life uh, and then we'll sing. But would you stand uh, and I'll pray for us. God, thank you for making a way for us to be made new. Thank you for making a way for us to live the life you desire for us. Make us people of justice, people of mercy, people who walk humbly with you. We pray it for your glory and for the sake of the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen.